0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. For the first time, Alaska has a list of missing indigenous people compiled by state law enforcement officials. They hope it provides a basis for addressing the disproportionate percentage of native people who go missing. It's among the developments coming from a nationwide awareness push. Meanwhile, some other states have hit roadblocks when addressing concerns related to missing and murdered indigenous relatives. We'll check in with some selected locations right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. It was announced yesterday that the Interior Department will cancel its remaining oil leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This will prevent drilling in 13 acres in the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska. The Biden administration declared that the ANWR lease sale, which was held in 2021 during the final days of the Trump's administration, violated federal law. The Interior Department also added protections by putting a stop to offshore drilling in the federal waters of the Beaufort Sea earlier this year, almost a year before the administration approved ConocoPhillips' $8 billion oil development project, Willow, in the Reserve. Guatemala's much-criticized attorney general met with the head of the Organization of American States this week about her Justice Department's role in the country's turbulent election process. Meanwhile, indigenous leaders carried out traditional ceremonies to censure the attorney general and others they accused of corruption. Maria Martin reports.
2: After her meeting with OAS Secretary General Luis Almagro, Guatemala's Attorney General Consuelo Porras says there's a campaign to discredit her and her Justice Department for investigating valid legal complaints. She rejected the accusation that her investigation of President-elect Bernardo Arevalo Semilla Party is an attempt at a legal coup. Parte de un proceso de golpe de Estado, como falsamente se ha señalado. The Justice Department's only defending democracy and the legal order, says Boras. Meanwhile, Indigenous groups are stepping up actions, calling for her resignation. On Tuesday, Maya ancestral authorities performed a traditional ceremony outside the presidential palace, asking for punishment for corrupt government officials.
1: For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. There's a new marker along Anchorage's coastal trail. It says Nuch Tunt, which means the place protected from the wind in Dena'ina, Athabaskan. The sign is part of the Indigenous Place Names Project and is a reminder that Dena'ina people were and continue to be part of Anchorage. Jeremy Shea reports from Alaska Public Media in Anchorage.
3: At a ceremony celebrating the new signpost, Aaron Leggett shares an anecdote about meeting other young Alaska natives when he was 19 working at the Alaska Native Heritage Center.
0: And I told them that I was Dena'ina, and they said, well, what's that? And and then they said, where's your village? Well, Akhludna is 26 miles from uh, downtown Anchorage. And some of them who had grown up in Anchorage said, well, I didn't know Native people lived here.
3: He says he realized Dena'ina were largely invisible, and he wanted to work on reclaiming who Dena'ina are as a people. That was more than 20 years ago. Now Leggett is the president of the native village of Aklutna and a curator with the Anchorage Museum. He's been working on the Indigenous Place Names Project since its inception in 2018. The Nuch Ishtunt sign is the effort's fourth installment. The Native people used to set up seasonal salmon fishing camps near this point, up until federal officials banned commercial fishing here in the 1950s.
2: Indigenous placemaking deepens the
4: connection we have to place.
3: Beth Nordland is the executive director of the Anchorage Park Foundation, another organization working on the project.
4: This is bigger than signs. It's a movement.
3: Project supporters eventually want to put up 32 of these sculpture signs in high-visibility areas around Anchorage, Manaclutna. They each feature iron artwork representing a fire bag, which is a pouch used to carry materials for starting a fire. It's also a symbol of living outdoors and sharing. In Anchorage, I'm Jeremy Shea.
1: I'm Jill Freitas.
0: National Native News is produced by Kowanic Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
5: Is your tank empty? There's another gas you should be worried about. Carbon monoxide can kill in minutes, but you can stay safe by placing CO alarms in your home. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business?
0: The state of Alaska just released its first-ever Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Report. It includes cases under investigation by state and local law enforcement agencies. There are 280 names in the report going back to 1960. It's the result of the Alaska Governor's People's First Initiative, launched in late 2021, to increase public safety measures, including a focus on the disproportionate percentage of Alaska Native citizens who go missing or are victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, in human trafficking. Another state MMIP effort in Oklahoma is making progress, but is hampered by a lack of federal funding. The legislature passed Ida's law two years ago. Today on our show, we'll hear from Native advocates about how these programs are progressing and what is being done to address disparities. If you have a comment or a question, join this conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848 our number again is 1-800-996-2848. Get your calls in early and we'll have plenty of time to get you on the air. Let's go ahead and meet our guest today. First up in Anchorage, Alaska, we're joined by Dr. Charlene akpik She is the Executive Director of Data for Indigenous Justice. She is Inupiaq. You've been a guest on NAC before, Akpik. Welcome back.
4: Good morning. Thank you.
0: Good morning to you as well. Also joining us from Anchorage, Alaska is Kendra Kloster. She is the co-director of law and policy at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. She's Tlingit. Hello Kendra, great to have you on the show.
6: Good morning, thanks for having me.
0: And in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, we have Lorenda Morgan. She is the cousin of Ida Beard and an advocate for missing and murdered indigenous women. She's a citizen of the Cheyenne Arapaho Tribes. Lorenda, you've been a guest before, too. Welcome back.
7: Thank you.
0: Akpik, I'd like to begin with you, and please share your initial thoughts on this MMI report, MMIP report that Alaska officials just released.
2: Yeah, for sure.
4: Thank you so much. I think when we start to talk about data one of the first things that I like to share of course is the reminder that these are people who are so loved and missed in our communities that these numbers and figures and um, you know all the columns and rows you know just just pause and to take a moment that these are people who are just so loved and it just yeah that they're very much missed and so humanizing data I think first and foremost is really important so that as we move forward and talk about, like, the impacts and what does this mean, um, that we remind ourselves, you know, that these are people who are missing um, in our communities. So, that was, you know, the first thing that i like to share about it and that um, Data for Indigenous Justice um, put out the first report actually two years ago in 2021 and that report is on our website. Um, And so we're it's hopeful to see law enforcement put out their report this year and um, to share these numbers with transparency. Um, but also that our communities and families have been tracking their loved ones um, for a long time now.
0: Well, Akpik, Thank you for reminding us for sure that people are more than numbers. Really important to stress that. And as I understand it, most of the information in the report, it comes from existing records and data sets, but it does include new information, specifically the circumstances around each unresolved disappearance, which is pretty significant. Uh, How happy are you or how positive do you feel with regard to that additional information that's being shared? And how helpful is that going forward with with hopefully solving some of these cases dating back all the way to 1960? Geez, that's a long time ago. Yeah, so the
4: digitization of the data for uh, law enforcement was pretty recent. So that's why you'll also see some of the the dates dating back quite a bit further than previous ones that they had released. Um, So that was something, again, that we had advocated for, as well as some of those columns that you mentioned. So the circumstances of um, the case is on the far right there, if you're looking at the report. And that was something also that DIJ had advocated for because there was such a, a large difference between someone who might go missing while hunting versus someone who might go um, missing and we suspect they're abducted, right? And so those things previously for law enforcement were all in one category. And we saw that of course, as was hugely problematic in efforts to try to get traction on cases and you know work towards justice um, when we didn't have them separated out. And so some of the updates um, based on recommendations we've been making for years, I think um, hopefully help law enforcement better handle cases and have a grasp on what's happening um, in the state of Alaska.
0: Well, one piece of information that I found most intriguing, the report states that the vast majority of MMIP cases there in Alaska, more than seventy five percent, in fact, are due to environmental factors such as a plane crash or, wilderness accidents, and then less than 7% are categorized as suspicious. Do you feel those numbers are accurate, Akpik?
4: Well, I think one of the other um, overlaying factor, like the intersectionality of the data that we see that should be shocking with those numbers is that maybe there's a lot of environmental cases. And we're also seeing this disproportionately happen to Alaska Native and American Indian people. And that we see and experience um, across all communities, right, that there are so many missing and murdered Indigenous peoples, um, and that disproportionality is what should stand out.
0: Okay. So what else could the agency do? What would you like to see uh, in terms of improved statistics or other types of data that uh, could be most helpful going forward?
4: Right. So... You know, years ago, as we started to have these conversations with law enforcement, we were at the point where they were saying, no, you know, that if we acknowledge or pull these numbers and, you know, they show what you're saying um, and what we came to them with um, real experience from families. Um, you know, they said that that would mean that we're treating cases differently um, based off of race and ethnicity and. I, with information that we had been stewarding um, with our families and communities for years, said, well, we're seeing these disproportionate numbers over time, that points to a systemic issue. And we're not going to stop asking these questions until we see those numbers change. And so what I hope for with having law enforcement have this information at their fingertips is that it translates into meaningful casework and meaningful headway on a lot of these cases that we see have been happening again sadly for over decades of time, disproportionately to Alaska Native and American Indian people. Um, So I hope that, you know, having, you know, why information is so powerful is because then we really can think critically about, okay, what does this look like and what it looks like with these numbers and these figures is that there is a lot of injustice still happening. And so I hope that it translates, again, into meaningful change with law enforcement and experiences in our communities with um, our Indigenous families.
0: And, Akhbik, meaningful change, meaningful headway, what does that look like to you? I mean, what kind of numbers would you like to see changed? Yeah. Or what's your, well, I, what's you your know, metric I for think, progress? I'm sorry. Right? Go ahead. So
4: the vision is none. Right? the The dream number is zero, right? We should be able to live and thrive in safety um, period in our in our communities. And so that's what I, you know, that's my vision. Um and what does that look like in between is a lot of the things that actually Kendra and our partners at other organizations um, have been working on as well, and other other people in the state. there's a lot of indigenous people working really hard up here in Alaska. Um, But some of the things that that would look like are, for example, having the MMIP investigators um, was something that Kendra worked really hard for um, over years. And we finally have a few of those positions filled. We're looking also for um, specific prosecutors and lawyers to take these cases so they don't get backlogged in the state. Um, We're looking for legislation, which again, Kendra can answer a lot more details about. Um, Also, mandating data entry into the federal database is something I think Alaska could do in the next, um, you know, year. (laughs) Uh, That is a no cost ask that I think would bridge a lot of the gaps across agencies. So, there's a lot more steps that we've been working on um, getting up here in Alaska. And so, hopefully, hopefully again, with the accurate information and data piece that we can um, bridge it all together.
0: Now, speaking of data, I know your organization, Data for Indigenous Justice, you folks gather similar information on some of these cases. How does it compare with what the state of Alaska is doing?
4: Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so one, one of the things I like to share with people is that our database first came from families and communities. This emerged from us literally hearing story and writing it down and tracking for ourselves right, having sovereignty over our own story and narrative. And it's based in our truth. And the way that that shows up in data is, for example, if a family has come to me and they lost a loved one, let's say, um, and that column was for law enforcement, you know, they said it was environmental or unknown, but that family and that community knows all of the circumstances and strongly feel that that person death or missing case was suspicious, then that's a case that in my database, we we write that and it reflects the truth of our families, right? That's part of decolonizing data and part of having accurate information is working off of the truth of our life experience, Um, and that's something very different than law enforcement data. And so we have that all, like, for lack of a better word, quote, corrected in our data, um, so we have cases where maybe it was listed as suicide or not suspicious, and those things are all captured in our data system, which is, again, different than the states.
0: Okpik, okay, thank you for leading off our discussion. We are going to take a short break here in just a moment, but I encourage callers to give us a, a call right now. Our phone lines are open and we can get your comments on the air. If you have anything to add to this discussion of missing and murdered indigenous people, we're talking about Alaska right now, but later in the show, we're going to pivot down and talk about issues in Oklahoma. So our phone lines are open one 800 996 48, or just call 1-800-99-NATIVE. That'll work just as well. A number of Native-led productions are taking the stage. They include an all-Indigenous production about Canadian residential schools written by a First Nations playwright. We'll get a look at upcoming theater productions on the next Native America Calling.
5: Education sovereignty. It begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day, a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA awards ceremony. Registration ends October 13th at NIEA.org.
0: Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our conversation about the MMIP crisis and progress to address it. Has your community or state implemented a new program that shows promise? What challenges does your community have around data gathering or policy? These are just a few of the questions I pose to you as listeners. Please join this conversation by calling one 800 996 2848 That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's bring Kendra Kloster into our conversation now. She's co-director of law and policy at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. And Kendra, listening to OCPIC start us off today and speaking specifically about the data in this new report there in the state of Alaska, how pleased are you so far with the progress made by the state of Alaska in addressing the, the MMIP crisis?
6: I would say over the last um, few years, we've definitely been making some progress, but I think that it really comes to show about the indigenous organization and people who have been advocating for this change. It's been, as we know from the data, it's been decades that this has been an issue in our communities all across the state, the country, and the nation. And it's all of these voices that have really pushed our policymakers to pay attention and so I I really give a lot of credit to all of our indigenous organizations and people for uplifting this issue and not letting it go and saying that we need to ensure that um, safety protocols are happening in our communities and this is being addressed by DIJ releasing its own report. And other reports that um, came out, that's what helped start our conversations and to get people to move and to understand how big of a crisis that we are in right now. So, in the last couple of years, um, as our organizations have come together in partnership to ask for these changes, we have started to see that. Um, we've seen that in the last um, couple of years, as OCPIC mentioned we now have four MMIP investigators at the Department of Public Safety. And that's the first time that this has happened. And even the DPS commissioner had told us, you know, after they hired one, that they did not understand how big of a crisis this was and said, wow, one person is not enough. So we had worked with the legislature and advocated for additional funding. So now we have four positions In addition to that is, this last year in the budget, we got an MIP attorney that will be at the Attorney General's office. um, Because what's happening is we get backlogs of cases. We want to ensure that when investigations are happening, that we have a specific attorney to work on that and to move prosecutions forward. So there are some things happening, um, which I am grateful for, that we've been able to make some process, make some progress. And have these partnerships with the state, but there is still a lot more to do.
0: And legislatively, Kendra, what's on the horizon?
6: Right now, we've been working with Senator Olson and other legislators um, to bring forward MMIP legislation. Um, A number of our organizations have been presenting to the legislature over the last few years just educating on what's happening across the state and the MMIP cases um, that are going on and offering our recommendations and sharing the stories, you know, with permission from families that have come to us. And what we're discovering is some of the loopholes and that's where some of our, our ideas and advocacies are coming from is directly from our communities, sharing that with our policymakers to say, this is the change that we need to have happen. And that's also where data is really important. Because a lot of times when you're pushing policy, they want to see the issue. They want to know, okay, what does the data say? So that's something that policymakers often ask for. So this year, um, this last year in the legislature, we do have a bill, um, Senate Bill 151, that Senator Olson put in. And this is in the state legislature. And what and what that bill does is it creates a rev- an MMIP review commission. So this commission will be specifically looking at the number of cases and trying to identify what's happening here in the state. And so that will take an in-depth look um, should this bill pass. And then we'll be able to make recommendations on increased things that we can do to increase the safety and look at why this is happening here in Alaska. And it will also um, codify those MMIP positions as investigators into state statute. Cause right now it's done through the budget process and we want to ensure that our investigators will stay on, you know, through any administration changes, you know, as best as possible. So it's important to be putting that into statute. Um, we have other um, ideas and recommendations that we are continue to work on with legislators and with our you know, commissioners and folks and bringing things forward. So hopefully we will see other things happening as well.
0: And Kendra, in your meetings and conversations with lawmakers, what do you say to them when they ask you questions like, well, we want to see more information, we need more information, we need more details in terms of of what's happening to these relatives?
6: Talk to your constituents. That's often what I say. We hear from families all the time that they need to be open to be hearing stories and we know the stories, as Ockpik says. Our communities have come to us; they've talked to us. We know that this is happening. There are reports that are coming out now, um, so we do, you know, provide that information. But we know that this MMIP crisis has been happening for a long time because our communities know it, and we know what's happening there. And so it's really listening to the people, listening to our stories, and listening really intently to see what's happening. Like I say, where are those loopholes? What's failing in our state? You know, a lot of times there might be something that happens within the case procedure that needs to be changed. And that's where our policy makers can help make a difference. They can help make a difference by, you know, increasing some of the public safety needs um, across Alaska. And that goes for federal and state, because it's not just funding our uh, VPSOs, our village police officers, and our state police officers, but it's also having federal support for our tribal justice systems, our tribal sovereignty, and tribal police officers, there's multiple different ways. There's not one way to provide public safety in the state. So it's both a federal and a state um, support system that that needs to happen here.
0: And Kendra, we're talking primarily about the investigation side of it now, but what about the actual enforcement of crimes against Alaskan Natives in some of these MMIP cases? Are you seeing disparities there as well?
6: Definitely when I'm talking with families and hearing stories, um, I, I sit on the uh, statewide MMIP commission, um, which happened for about a year now, and it's being transferred over to the Department of Public Safety where we're working to keep that commission going. But we do have families that come and testify and talk to us about what happened during the investigation process And, you know, some of the stories that we might hear from law enforcement are going to be different from our families. And that really needs to be um, rectified to say, okay, this is what's happening. This is their experience. How can we change that through the investigation process? And I think this is also where this review commission can be important is we're going to, you know, the hope is that once this gets passed, is they're going to be looking at what is that investigation process and ensuring that, you know, if one police officer is doing it, that the other one is also doing it to really put in the procedure. So everyone is following the same procedures and listening to our families and understanding that. So there are definitely, I think, investigation processes that can be streamlined and supported. And and it's also really different in understanding what's happening in rural Alaska and the people that you're talking to. For example, cultural training is something that we have been advocating for um, for a long time because we have people that are in law enforcement that are coming from the lower 48 that are just not understanding what Alaska is really like, what indigenous people are like. And so the communication between them um, is going to be vastly different. And I've heard that directly from um, law enforcement where someone that has been on the force for 20 years versus someone new and they might be talking to um, someone out in rural Alaska and they understand like just even, even sometimes like our facial expressions that can really are more. Talkative in that way, but if you're not familiar with our indigenous cultures, you're not going to pick up on that. And so cultural training is something that we've been talking about. We think it's very important on how to communicate with people and in our last conversation with the commissioner he absolutely agreed and so that's something that we're hoping to push for to make it mandatory for every person um coming up or every person just in law enforcement to be able to take cultural training to understand you know who we are as indigenous people and making sure that those communications are open and understood
0: Kendra, that's so important, and thank you for adding that, uh, this cultural training. And something as nuanced as a facial expression uh, is something that a less seasoned investigator just won't be able to necessarily pick up on or a law enforcement officer. So uh, you've really done a, a good job of explaining that, I think, to, to folks that aren't from Alaska and might not understand some of the challenges there. And I'd, I would like to, to pivot back briefly back to OCPIC, and Akpik. You know, Earlier, you talked about the data that uh, you folks there at the Indigenous Justice Center collect, and Kendra also stressed just how important that data is coming from specifically from the community. But if I'm not mistaken, you don't share your data with the state, and can I ask why that is?
4: Yeah, so that's something that we've done really intentionally about protecting and caring for the stories and the trust that um, our families and communities have given to us and sharing these. So, um, with, I have a really fantastic board and um, with that trust that we have and with our stewardship of this information, it's first and foremost, you know, gathered by our people for our people. And so we give that information back to tribes or back to um, advocates and people doing frontline work first and foremost and so, People entrust us with this information, these stories, and it's not for giving back to the state or the feds who have the capacity um, to be tracking the information just as we do. But I think because of political will, um, you know, they are not or they're starting to catch up. Um, and so we just want to make sure that our people know we're taking care of this information and that we honor those stories. Uh, By caring for it and making sure that it's for the benefit of us, it isn't to go back and to serve the state and the feds who have had the capacity to be tracking this for a really long time um, and are just now starting to do that. And so there's again, there's a difference between indigenous peoples homing and collecting our own information for the benefit of us versus the state and federal entities doing that. And so, again, our recommendations are that they collaborate and that they have information that they're sharing back such as mandating nemas or having reports like this, where we 1st, this is the 1st time we've seen the troopers and APD collaborate on data. And that's what our recommendations are for them to start doing that work that we've already been doing for a long time.
0: Akpik, thank you. And Kendra, thank you as well. Uh, Appreciate these updates there from Alaska. And we'll come back to Alaska. But before we do, I want to bring our next guest into the conversation, Lorenda Morgan, who is down in Oklahoma, and she's an advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women. And Lorenda, again, thank you for joining us today. And uh, let's talk a little bit about what's happening there in Oklahoma. I know it's been two years since Ida's law passed. And of course, Ida Beard was a cousin of yours. How's it working out there in Oklahoma?
7: Well, currently in Oklahoma, we have um, Ida's law, which we enacted in 2021. I know there's been some recent articles come out about the funding for Ida's law. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about that in in a little bit. But I also want to... um, talk about some other things that are going on in the state. Um, In April of 2023, the U.S. Attorney General's Office, um, the U.S. Attorney General, Robert Troster, issued Savannah's Act guidelines for the Western District of Oklahoma. So, our Assistant U.S. Attorney General here in Oklahoma is Arvo and He's um, also a member of the, I believe, the Kiowa Tribe of Oklahoma. And so, he has been working and helping to establish and be involved with um, MMIP. Um, I see him uh, quite a bit at a lot of events. And then we have the BI BIMMU unit um, in Oklahoma, um, our agents there. Uh, our current um, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, uh, I know there's some uh, kind of some information that's been put out saying, making it seem like you know, um, the office of liaison is not operational, but it has been operating, um, and the agent there is, uh, currently is Josh Pitskowski. And so we have recently, in this last spring, um, a lot of the state agencies, such as the Oklahoma Medical Examiner's Office, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, um, and even law enforcement, um, city law enforcement, uh, police departments have all come together. Uh, we had an event called Missing in Oklahoma, where we had the event for families of missing persons. We had the BIA was there, as well as the Cheyenne-Arapaho tribes. And we had some MMIP chapters uh, come, and the day was set aside for Oklahomans to come and um, share their story, to connect with Um, You know, make sure that their family member had all their information put into the NamUs database and to also, you know, fill out forms with the OSBI, the Oklahoma Medical Examiner's Office, and to give DNA samples because here in Oklahoma, you know, they're trying to push if you have a missing person in your family that you come and give your DNA samples so that they can check the medical examiner remains Um, And the OSBI has been out educating and, you know, working cases, especially with, you know, Oklahoma is a little different than some of the other states, like South Dakota um, also passed uh, HB uh, 1199, which was modeled after Ida's law, and that was enacted in 2021. Um, They have an Office of Liaison for Missing and Murdered Indigenous People, and then Colorado um, has SB 22-150, which um, was signed into law in June of 2022. Um, they have an established uh, office of liaison and an advisory council. And then here in, as well in, in Oklahoma this past spring, we passed a Casey's alert here in Oklahoma, which is HB uh, 1077, um, and it's a, it's a missing persons alert. So I feel like we have made some progress, but our story is a very similar to the story that Kendra told about what's happening in Alaska. It took some time to educate, I believe the public and the media and the Oklahoma legislature, the policymakers to kind of let them know that, you know, there's a crisis here in Oklahoma as well. Not only All in right. Oklahoma, but you All know, right. uh
0: Lorenda, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take another short break, but when we come back, uh, I'm going to have you talk more about those challenges in Oklahoma. I also want to get some more details with regard to Ida's law, and you mentioned Colorado, and I know that you are on a a board for the Colorado MMIR Task Force, so definitely lots of good information that we're going to receive from Lorenda Morgan, folks, so stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break.
5: Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right. When you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission.
0: You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Share your comments or questions about MMIP updates from Alaska to Oklahoma by calling 1-800-996-2848. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have Lorenda Morgan on the line in Oklahoma City. She's an MMIW advocate and Lorenda, can you explain more uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with Ida's Law? What exactly is Ida's Law and how does it work?
7: Okay, Ida's Law is a creation of the Office of Liaison for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons. And it is established within the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations. Um, we We came... Ida's Law was created um, because in 2018 um, I had shared Ida Beard's Missing Persons flyer on Facebook. Now, Ida Beard, she's my first cousin. Um, Our mothers are sisters. And Ida went missing from El Reno, Oklahoma in 2015. She's a member of the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe. She was 29 years old at the time. And in sharing um, her missing persons flyer, uh, state representative, Oklahoma state representative, uh, Mickey um, Dollins had reached out to me and asked, you know, about the flyer. He asked what happened, he was interested and he reached out and said, is there anything I can do? I really wanna help, is there? And you know, I jumped on it. I said, yes, because we haven't been able to get her story covered in the media you know we haven't been able like there's been no movement on her case there's this this and this issue and so we got together and had a series of meetings and talked and discussed about what he could do legislatively and you know what what he had to offer to help in this situation and immediately he you know he's a very popular state representative here in oklahoma and the media love him and so he used his media um, influence and got Ida's case um, covered in the news, and then other stories of MMIP. And he did an interim study with the state legislature in 2019. We went through that. And then at the end of 2019, you know we drafted the bill. Uh, we, he filed the bill and, and we started it took us a couple years, but you, know, the first year, um, in 2020, um, of course, you know, we had, that's when COVID came, but we spent that legislative session basically educating the Oklahoma legislature about what MMIP was and about, you know, the, the, the crisis and how it affects, you know, the tribal communities as well as Oklahoma. Um, so, we were able to get the legislation through, and it was signed into law in 2021. One of the issues that we have with Ida's law is that, you know, originally it was slated to be state-funded. At the time, um, during the Trump administration, we had the operated Operation Lady Justice, and, you know, with the uh, funding that was coming down, the federal funding was, you know, the, it was all over the news about, you know, these 11 states or whatever were going to have funding for to address the MMIP crisis, and so one of the state legislators amended the bill to say it would be federal funded. They didn't understand, I guess at the time there was, mis, you know, misunderstanding that that federal fund funding was coming down for the U.S. Attorney General's office, and the state would not be able to utilize that funding. So Um, The bill passed, you know, and at the time we didn't know, you know, so, um, and so when it, when it went into effect in November of 2021, uh, I talked to the uh, directors at the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation and they said that by law, they were required to um, fill this position and, and they have appointed somebody to, you know, and they're using their current state budget, which you know, a lot of people, a lot of your listeners don't know, but the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation has been underfunded for several years. And um, so, but they are making do. They do have an agent that's working in the position that has been working in a position. And one of the things, I think the challenges to Ida's law here in Oklahoma and is that, you know, there has not been any... Um, they have not been eligible for, like, the MMIP federal funds. Now, okay. with, any, with any state agency, they, they're eligible for, you know, grants. But some of the DOJ MMIP funding that might, might be out there is open to tribes and organizations and maybe not state entities. So um, what the OSBI um, faces is that, you know, they, they work every case every MMIP case, every case in Oklahoma that they're called to work on. And one of the things that one of the directors had told me, Stephen Carter at the OSBI, he said that, you know, the OSBI, they get no fees or funds out of, you know, working the federal cases like with the FBI. They're required because of the McGirt ruling in Oklahoma to um, work alongside the FBI um, on, on these cases. Now, mm-hmm. they said the tribes and the FBI don't pay the OSBI for their services or assistance, like with using their labs or using their manpower, their agents, um, and they don't receive payments. But the OSBI cannot turn down the case. They have to work all the cases. So they said that, you know, they make do with their budget. Um, and, and, you know, this past, for the last two years, I've been working with um, Cong- Congress, Congress, Oklahoma delegation. Congresswoman Stephanie Bice um, sent a letter to President Biden in March um, of 2022. And it was signed by all the Oklahoma congressional delegates, with the exception of one, which was Congressman Linkford. Um, and they asked Biden for a continuation of MMIP initiatives uh, and additional funding and resources to solve MMIP in Oklahoma. So they are advocating, our Oklahoma delegates are advocating to you know, get this crisis um, addressed. Okay. So, but it all it it all um, takes advocacy work. You Absolutely. You know, we have to keep Absolutely. them informed. We have to, you know, work alongside them and help them. We just like Kendra said. You know, there's data. We have to get them the data. We have we have okay. to do the legwork as advocates.
0: All right. Lorenda, um, we've got a couple of calls here on the line, and and I just want to stress for our listeners that it might not be clear. uh, Ida's law calls called for a creation of the office of liaison for missing and murdered Indigenous persons, uh, and that falls within the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. And as Lorenda explains, uh, there are funding issues there. So let's go ahead and take a caller now. We have Chanupa, who is listening up on in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, uh, listening to Keely. Hello, Chanupa. How are you doing today? Hey,
3: I'm doing great.
8: Thanks for you guys too. Um, uh, The
6: lady that just spoke of, you know, the missing person area.
0: Okay, Chanupa, can you talk into the phone a little bit more clearly? We can't quite hear yet. We're having a hard time.
3: Okay, hold on. Let me do this one real quick. Real quick, I'm gonna do this. Okay, Sean, can you hear me?
0: Yeah, that's better, Chanupa, thank you.
3: Nineteen
6: years ago, Jesse Jesse Brown Eyes and Corinda Martin went missing. Nineteen years ago, going on twenty years now. Corinda, my niece, has never been found. We're still, you know, looking for her. And they were last seen in Chadron, Nebraska. This is a hamlet right up the road, about 36 miles from Pinewoodshire. And her husband, her boyfriend was found. He was all beat up, of course, but he's still troubled by what happened. Gave the description to all this to the police and stuff. So, after a series of illustrations of looking for her,
3: Nothing has come
6: of it. And, you know,
0: because of the okay, Chanupa, I'm really sorry, brother, but we're just having a really hard time with the reception today. But uh, I appreciate you calling and uh, thoughts and prayers with regard to your missing and murdered Indigenous relatives. And uh hope you can call in again another day, Chanupa, and we have a little bit better connection with you. Uh, I'm going to go to our next caller. We have uh, in Oklahoma... State Representative Amanda Swope, who represents District 71. Hello, Amanda, how are you doing today?
8: I'm good, thank you. How is everybody else doing?
0: We're doing really well. Uh, tough conversation, though, really tough listening to, to some of this data and also the personal stories as well. Um, tell us more, uh, Amanda, about your role uh, in combating the, the MMIP crisis there in Oklahoma.
4: Um, well, you know, I've had the pleasure
8: of working with my tribe for uh, a number of years, and, and I get the, the benefit also of being an ally for them um, in our state house here in Oklahoma. I mainly in my uh, work actually work on the juvenile justice side, uh, but I think that that does get kind of into a really um, large portion of, of why MMIP is something that still exists. I think that there's still a lot of uh, tendency to, to look at Native children or other children of color um, as kind of these just delinquent runaways as opposed to taking their cases um, serious as an actual missing persons case and, and treating it with that, um, you know, that level of importance. Um, and so getting to see things like uh, IDA's law be enacted and put into practice uh, I think has been a really big benefit to, to the work that needs to be done, um, having the, the advocacy piece for victims and families, um, I think okay. is incredibly helpful. Um, and and, then and Representative giving... Swope,
0: I'm sorry, but these these funding challenges that, that Lorenda Morgan shared earlier with regard to, to, to not having the funds in place to adequately um, implement IDA's law, a, any progress there? going forward with regard to getting that funding shored up?
8: I haven't heard of anybody taking that kind of initiative. Um, I would be happy to as we go into next session to kind of look and see what can be done as far as having the state commit more money to that. I know that there is a lot of federal action that's taken place to fund it and to provide more funding to that initiative. Um, But I would like to see even just as an element of diplomacy in this conversation that's taken place between the state of Oklahoma and tribes um, following the GERT and things like that uh, to see them kind of be more committed to addressing mmip as well.
0: And, and the Oklahoma state legislature and, of course, Governor Stitt there, Governor of Oklahoma, I mean, how much support overall do you think there is for MMIP issues in, in Oklahoma right now?
8: You know, I, I think despite... Uh, some of the, the governor's comments and and maybe posturing on the subject I think that when you get down to the actual legislature that there is a lot of support for this type of um, effort and, and putting funding towards that um, I'm a member of the native caucus um, on the House side and um, I would say that it's probably one of our largest caucuses um, that meets and that tries to determine kind of a, a common thread of priorities um, and, and I think that nobody wants to see the children of Oklahoma go go missing or be harmed, and um, I think that any, any kind of work that can be done to help alleviate that in some way is always going to be highly supported.
0: Well, Representative Swope, we sure appreciate you calling in today, adding to the conversation, and I want to pivot back to Lorenda as we wind down the conversation, and Lorenda, of course, you were also on the board of the Colorado MMIR Task Force. It was established about the same time as some of these efforts there in Oklahoma. And what kind of progress are we seeing there in Colorado?
7: Well, uh, we have had two um, task force meetings. Um, I think that um, I, the board, um, we were just, um, I guess, added to the board and um, me, even though I'm from Oklahoma, Shin Arapahoes have ancestral ties to Colorado. So, um, you know, I was um, added to the board and in the spring. And so I've attended two meetings and I believe it, they're just starting up the, as far as the advisory council task uh, board. Um, I know that they, the bill was um, passed in 2022. So I think that um, one of the things that we are doing is strategically seeing how we can improve things in Colorado, like get information out. Like some of the things that the the, um, OMMIR does is it helps connect families with resources, it provides information to families on how to report missing and murdered loved ones. And that's really important because some of the things that we have found um, is that a a lot of times, because of the distrust of um, law enforcement, sometimes family members, and even, you know, from 50 years ago, still have not had an official missing persons report done. So just, you know, showing that, like, giving the information out and, and having a, a um, liaison office to, to kind of walk, walk uh, tribal members through how to report a missing persons and who, who to appropriately report to um, is is vital, and then the the task force works to increase awareness regarding missing and murdered people, and it's you know we're there to develop and enhance partnerships with the tribal law enforcement and, and communities, and and then collaborate with the state and local partners to develop trainings. Um, the uh, director of that Office of Liaison is Aaron Julian, so if anyone has questions, you know, that's out of the Colorado Department of Public Safety. Um, and I think Colorado is doing what a lot of us are trying to do is just, like, get the information out to, you know, the tribal communities on how to connect and how to get assistance for their families.
0: All right. All right. Lorenda, really appreciate you joining our conversation. Families waiting 50 years to file a missing person report or getting a missing person report uh, from officials. That's just really, really shocking. But unfortunately, folks, we are out of time. So thank you to all of our guests today, as well as our callers who joined the conversation, and uh, really, really helpful updates and insights on efforts to combat the missing and murdered indigenous persons crisis. Tune in to Native America Calling again tomorrow as we preview upcoming Native Stage Productions. Hope you'll join us.
2: Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help.
0: SBA is one of the best allies. It's a great partner with financial tools, educational tools, they are really there to help you to be a better entrepreneur and a better business leader.
2: For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis.
5: Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's a m e r i n d.com.